Listening Dog Media. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Offside Rule. We get it. Brought to you by a Wolves fan, a Manchester United fan and a Liverpool fan. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule. We get it. It's episode 16 with myself, Kate Borsay, Hayley McQueen and, well, Lindsay Hooper's done a runner. So instead, Natalie Sawyer steps in. Great to have you here, Natalie. Plenty to talk about on today's podcast. Service, please. This is on the back of Shrewsbury Town's manager, Graham Turner, becoming the longest serving manager in English football. So, Natalie, Haley, I'm going to be asking you for your votes for the service awards in league football. We'll be talking away days as well. The lengths you and your team go to to get to away fixtures. And we'll even get a couple of personal stories from you as well ladies. We'll also be hearing from Sean Thorne with our Twitter topic of the week and Mina Razuki is going to be updating us on all things Syria. Don't forget you can find us on the net at offsiderulepodcast.com via Twitter at offsiderulepod our Facebook page is the Offside Rule and we're available to download every Thursday via Audioboo and iTunes. The female take on football. First of all, ladies, let's head into our first topic. Not to start the podcast off on too much of a downer, but if you're a Spurs fan, I'm sure you'll still be upset about this. Manchester City defeating Tottenham 6-0 at the weekend. And after the game, Andre Villas-Boas said his side had to be ashamed of themselves. It was their heaviest league defeat in nearly 17 years. So, Hayley, Natalie, I'd like you to pick two other shameful performances from recent years, any league and any country. Nat, let's start with you. Goodness me, right, pressure's on. Well, my first one that I picked was France's exit from the 2010 World Cup. They'd been finalists just four years earlier under Raymond Dominic, but things seemed to really turn sour in South Africa. They began the campaign with a goalless draw against Uruguay, then they lost to Mexico, and then after that, well... It all went mad, didn't it? The players went on strike after Dominic fell out with Nicholas Anelka. Uh, after that Mexico defeat, Dominic had said he was lost for words, didn't understand what had gone wrong. As I say, the players then went on strike. Uh, the um, French media thought the national team was on the edge of the abyss and that they, the players just didn't care at all. Uh, they went on to bow out of the finals without a win, losing to South Africa in their final game. And it was after that that Dominic later referred to the players as a bunch of imbeciles. Um, so basically, my first one is France's national team of 2010. Going on strike, who does that? That is shameful. And my second one which I kind of twisted on the uh, word shameful. I've gone for kind of more embarrassing, Mm -hmm. which I think we can all remember Boxing Day of 2008 when a certain uh, Phil Brown did his halftime team talk on the pitch when uh, Manchester City were beating Hull 4-0 at halftime. In some ways, uh, you can say that the team talk did something because they only went on to concede, what, another goal after that and they scored as well. Um, But it certainly was embarrassing to have uh, (laughs) Phil Brown and his squad sat in front of 45,000 people Mm -hmm. on the pitch. Interestingly enough, Phil Brown comes up later in this podcast, so if you're a Phil Brown fan, stick around. Hayley, what have you got? Phil Brown's fan's biggest fan is <laughs> Phil Brown, actually, isn't it? Yeah, he'll be listening. Mine are completely low profile. Stories you may not have heard, but in my local area, up north in Teesside, this made headlines. You've been back north, haven't you, the last couple of days? Yeah. So you've been desperately flicking the pages yeah. of the Teesside Echo, right? Well, the, the Whitby Times, not oh, too long oh. ago, actually, the big headline was Whitby announces award-winning pie. 
that that was one of the headlines. It's more known for fish and chip town, so the pies are really taking over. But this is Billingham Town, quite near to where I'm from, actually. I have a friend who plays for them as well. They lost 14-0. Oh. They only fielded seven players. They didn't have any more players to play that were registered with the side. This was in a Durham Challenge Cup match. Big rivalry between them and Stockton, a neighbouring town. This was just on November the 2nd, not too long ago. Yeah, so they lost 14-0. Gary Pallister used to play for Billingham. That's where he started out. So they have greats who have gone on and done wonderful things having played for them. Um, they, To make matters worse, actually, two of the seven starters were injured. So they only actually really had five players, right? If that wasn't tough enough... Um, they didn't have a manager either. He'd resigned and gone to the other local rivals, Gisborough Town, on the Wednesday before the big game. So the whole club was in turmoil. But instead of cancelling the match and letting Stockton progress through to the next stages of the competition, Billingham actually managed to put out some kind of side. But unsurprisingly, they lost 14 nil. Uh, my second one is another local town. This is Droylston losing 10-0 at home in the Butcher's Arms to AFC Fylde in the Evo Stick Premier League. It it was a big one, this. This was just a week before that November game with Billingham. This was in October. Drollsden at the bottom of the Evo Stick Premier, just two points all season. They have conceded 76 goals in 20 games. Unfortunate. The problem was, though, they were actually only a goal down coming into half-time. So they were riding high, thinking we can pull this round. But actually, no, they they conceded another goal just before that and they absolutely completely crumbled. There was then a goal within a second of the restart and that just basically was the beginning of the end. So they lost. And again, that was a story that genuinely made headlines on the back pages of the local news up there. I'm amazed that they actually had a goalkeeper on the team after that result. Um, I've gone for an international first of all and it's from the same tournament that you mentioned at the World Cup in 2010 not a great tournament for England either was it really do you remember the Algeria game the one that we all hope to forget it was our second game in I can only remember it as completely eventless and very depressing I think I actually went to a pub and watched it and you know paid for a glass of wine and got nothing (laughs) got minus back in return Um, very flat game also you know, this is World Cup, this is England, and we all go in expecting a little bit too much. Um, And after a fairly good first game, we then arrive at this Algeria game thinking, great routine, let's just get it done and dusted so we can move on to the next one within our group. Um, But it wasn't like that. It was a nil-nil draw. Um, The performance was disgraceful. I mean, I'm going to get quite angry here because it was not the performance that a team who'd been you know, touted or, 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 or you know, perhaps uh, willed on to try and do really well in the World Cup. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say win it, but, you know, we were supposed to do something in that, in that tournament. And it was, it was just awful. Can I just say, during that game, I actually watched that with Algeria fans. Oh. I was in Doha working for the World, well, working on the World Cup. But the place where I went, you had to be fully covered up. So I kind of had like a pink sari and a bit of a headdress. But I was actually pleased by the end of it to not show that I was blatantly British and, you know, supporting England because I would have just looked absolutely stupid. I've got pictures of that. It's quite funny. And I had to interview lots of English-speaking Algerian fans. They were absolutely delighted with that. It was the best game they'd ever seen. Terrific. A great game to be in full disguise, I tell you, if you're an England fan. Uh, My next game, well, it's not just about showing a lot of red cards in a game. It's about beating a world 
record for showing an insane amount of cards. Quite what the referee was doing. Maybe he was all out to beat the yeah. world record. I've no idea. This game involved referee Damien Rubino showing 36 red cards. Now, how do you figure that? Two teams of 11 players. Okay, well, okay, well, maybe maybe a couple sent off per side, a couple back on, so maybe you could increase that 22 up to 26 or so. So how do you get to 36? Well, it wasn't just the players who were sent off. It was technical staff. It was uh, team staff. Uh, a horrendous amount of people. So this is an Argentinian referee, um, and this was a game between two sides over there, Claypole and Victoriano Arenas. But the game started messily, players pushing and shoving. Uh, the f- the match was constantly interrupted with fights and scuffles. Surprise, surprise. By the start of the second half, two players had already been dismissed. One for bad behaviour during the interval. So you can imagine what happened there. Towards the end of the match, it was just all out. A huge brawl ensued. Players, coaches um, and even fans were running onto the field, challenging the athletes to fights. Just absolute mayhem. The Victoriano Arena's boss, Domingo Saganga, claimed he feared for his life and begged police to take players into the dressing room and lock them in. It was that bad. Hi, I'm Phil Thompson and you're listening to The Offside Rule. All right, let's move on to the next topic. Service, please, ladies. Um, Shrewsbury Town's manager, Graham Turner. What a wonderful servant to the game. He is now currently the longest serving manager in English football. His career spans an incredible 35 years. That is good in any profession, but to stay a football manager for 35 years, I've got to feel sorry for his wife. (laughs) I have to say, the amount of stress that football managers take on. So I've asked both of you to take responsibility for handing out two awards in uh, some of the lower leagues. I wanted to take the Premier League out of this, mainly because, you know, apart from Van we actually struggled to find a longest-serving manager there. So, Hayley, I'm going to pass the two glass awards that I've got next to me over to you. How can I not start in the championship without mentioning Harry Redknapp? He is my first <laughs> award winner, the longest-serving manager in the championship, beginning his career as a boss of Bournemouth back on the 19th of October 1983. Um, he defeated defending FA Cup holders Manchester United in the third round of the Cup, Dean Court, just under three months later, and he's gone from strength to strength. This season, of course, maybe people thought that QPR wouldn't have a chance. They were going to go down and they were going to fail. And the players and the big names and the huge squad that they had wasn't going to be able to cope. All the big money signings weren't going to stick with him. All the big names like your Joey Bartons were just going to abandon the club. But no, he managed to bring Joey back. He has the best defence in the championship. They have the strength and depth to cope with injuries as well. They're missing Forlan, Onua and Bobby Zamora. So a little while back when they were missing big key players like that, he still managed to get the results. Well, he had to get rid of half his team just for sheer bad attitude, didn't he? They had a really comfortable win over Charlton, who were a side that they were kind of Okay, they're at the bottom of the table at the moment, but that was a big game and it was kind of billed as a, you know, a, a bit of a season turner. But um, since last January, they've had a wonderful year um, in terms of stability at the club. There was the whole hoo-ha and talk of whether Harry Redknapp would actually even stay with QPR, whether the, the hierarchy there would even keep him on. But he has been very, very loyal to Queen's Park Rangers. It's been a bit of a change. They had, of course, Steve McLaren coming in and helping them out. Um, he's since left. So they've had a bit of upheaval behind the scenes. But I think for a man to have stuck with his club and where they are in the league at the moment, which I think is about third at the moment, so they, they could again get promoted they could be um, right up there battling for promotion uh, this season so I think yeah hats off to Harry who is probably you'd think this would be the last team he may manage with the age that he's at and the career that he's had so he may just stick with QPR where he's happy 
there you have it. Another man who is managing at his club where he used to be a player is Chris Powell. And mm-hmm. he gets my next award. Again, another manager who's had a bit of an uphill battle. They had all the wonderful season and celebrating promotion. They're right down there in the kind of relegation battle at the moment, if you can call it that. They're just outside the relegation zone. But for a club to stick with Chris Powell when they've had a bit of a sticky start to a season and for Chris Powell to stick with the club and make it known that no matter how, you know, much they achieve, i.e. last season and how bad they're doing, he's not going to leave the club and just, you know, leave them where they are. But his contract actually runs out at the end of the season. And he said he will happily stay with the club, not enter complete full contract negotiations. I think presumably he would like to and have it wrapped up, but see how the club goes. So he's not completely leaving in the lurch because if they are a side that get relegated... Obviously, that's when the trouble starts. You're having to pay off managers with a club that aren't exactly that wealthy. Yeah, so they're just outside the relegation zone at the moment. They've only had one win in the last 10 games. But he has um, kind of G'd up his side when they've really needed it. And he's the type of manager that the players really looked up, look up to as a hero of the side and somebody who's obviously played for the club. But I think more of an award going to the club for sticking with him because by now, normally, the stats would say that a manager would be gone. So, Hayley, your long-standing service award goes to QPR's Harry Redknapp. And despite their table position, your this season's service award is going to Chris Powell just for the man's sheer loyalty. Natalie, I asked you to look at League One, your beloved Brentford sitting in fourth position, Mm -hmm. not doing too badly. I really, really hope that they get into the automatic promotion places because I don't think your nerves are going to last another season through the playoffs, are they? Not really, no. (laughs) Um, It's been quite... um, Eventful in the last few seasons for Brentford, that's for sure. But um, you've already mentioned, of course, the success of Graham Turner and and 35 years in charge is just incredible. Um, But I'm going to ignore that just because we've already bigged him up. And I'm going to start for my long-standing service award to go to actually Russell Slade, who has actually been at Leighton Orient since 2010. But actually, his managerial career began back in 1994 when he had a caretaker spell in charge of Notts County. Since then, he he sort of moved around in non-league and, and back into the Football League. But as I say, back uh, in charge of, of Leighton Orient uh, since April 2010 and what a turnaround it's been for him. Last year, it took them until September to pick up their first points. This year, well, we all know the fantastic run they've been on and they are top of the table. Just a point clear at the moment of Wolves, who were promotion favourites and nine clear of third-placed Peterborough. I don't think anybody would have predicted the start that Lane Orient have had. Uh, Certainly he probably wouldn't have predicted it either and he's spoken as well about the fact that it's probably all down to consistency, the fact that he's stuck with his same 11 as much as he could uh, and also is aware that they don't have that strength in depth that other teams have. So whether whether they'll be there come the end of the season is, is another matter. But certainly they have opened a few eyes in League One. Uh, as for the service of the season, well, I could give that to Russell Slade as well, bearing in mind the surprise start that they've had. And also... This could be a bit biased, but I am going to go with Uwe Rossler because we did have an inconsistent start to the season, it has to be said. Um, I was worried at one stage about his future, about the club's future. I wasn't sure what was going on there. But it all basically turned around on the Colchester game where he made a substitution that the fans at Griffin Park did not agree with. They were chanting, you're getting sacked in the morning, you don't know what you're doing. We went on to win that game, 3-1, and since then we've been on an unbeaten run. We've seven unbeaten, now up to fourth, and we're very much in the hunt uh, for that automatic promotion spot. So a little bit biased to go with Uwe Rossa, but I think he's doing a fantastic job, and I'm right behind him and right behind Brentford.
Um, so I've got a couple of awards to give out in League Two, and I'm going to be slightly biased as well, Haley, because at the beginning of the season we all adopted a team. Um, I chose Oxford United, and I'm going to go with Chris Wilder as my pick. Uh, they finished ninth in League Two last season. They now sit top. He's the third longest-serving manager in the whole of the football league, so of course he's going to get my long-standing service award for League Two. Uh, Oxford United have only lost three league games all season. They've won the last two. They've had a bit of a tricky period, really. That they had a really fantastic start to the season, and they were under. under defeated in, in a really phenomenal amount of games. They then had a bit of a sticky period. Now I hope that they're back to winning ways. They're still top of the league thanks to that early season form. Chris has been there for nearly five years. Um, so I think, yeah, Arsene Wenger and Paul Tisdale from Exeter, the only uh, other longer-serving managers in the league at the moment. What I like about Chris Wilder is he's been linked with other jobs, but he's chosen to stay at Oxford United. They've got some really interesting youth players now to draw on. I think that that is inherent of the work that Chris has been doing there in terms of helping the club progress. Obviously, money is an issue for a lot of clubs, and that's what he's chosen to do to great success. So, yeah, uh, my long-standing service award goes to Oxford United's Chris Wilder. My season service award goes controversially to Phil Brown. He needs a bit more love, doesn't he, Hayley? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we all love Phil. So, yeah, so uh, Phil Brown moved to Southend, um, as you may remember, at the end of March this year. And at that point, it was looking quite desperate for Southend. He shored them up, took them, of course, into the new season in League Two. And actually, the mood there is quite optimistic, which is quite a contrast from where he started out the club back in March. So, um Optimistic feeling around the club, as I've said. Um, They've registered their fourth successive victory recently um, to hopefully boost their chances of becoming promotion candidates. And when Phil replaced Paul Sturrock on the Essex coast, there was quite a bit of bit of controversy around that. It wasn't necessarily the most popular appointment. And I quite like it because I think he sees it as a bit of a project. And because it's a League Two club, he has got perhaps the authority there and the wherewithal there to make a project of it. And I really hope that it's a successful one for him. So yeah, Phil Brown at Southend gets my This Season's Service Award. Okay, well, it's time to check in with our Twitter topic of the week. Don't forget to interact with this, by the way, at Offside Rule Pod. And we're going to head over to Sean Thorne to hear about some of your responses. Twitter topic of the week. Well, Spurs have had better weeks, haven't they? Getting thumped 6-0 is never pleasant, but the Man City fans put the icing on the cake by tormenting the travelling support with Gareth Bale's patented heart celebration. It's a bit naughty, that, isn't it? So this week, we asked you guys to come up with your best examples of crowds winding up opposition fans. Matt Harris's comes from one of the neutrals' favourite football league clashes, Gillingham versus Millwall, where Gillingham asked the Millwall, do the social, know your ear. Some more banter between North London and Man City from Chris Hunter, who's gone for the Arsenal fans doing the Poznan after Arteta scored a late winner past Manchester City. Usually, when an opposing side is seen trying to make an early exit, there's the usual chorus of cheerio. However, Chris says he prefers the is there a fire drill, which he claims Brentford FC were the originators. Burnley have got their own very amusing one as well. It starts off with a soft chorus of time to go. Sadly, the ending's a little too coarse to share with you on this podcast, but go and watch your team lose heavily at Turf Moor. It's worth it. Miguel sent one in from the Chelsea fans. The Chelsea were singing to Shakhtar fans in Ukraine. Oh dear Shakhtar, oh dear Shakhtar, please defeat Juve so we wouldn't make history. I'm trying to wrap my brains to what tune that would have been to. The only thing I can sort of think of is K-Sara. Maybe I'm just being thick. But Chelsea won that night 6-1. 
but they still got sent packing off to the Europa League. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Offside Rule Pod. Very handy place to keep up with all the world's football news as well. I'm Sean Thorne and I'll hand you back to the girls. Thank you very much, Sean. Some amusing ones there. OK, ladies, let's move on to our topic three, entitled Away Days. This is after Liverpool owner John W. Henry offered Luis Suarez use of his private jet to return home from Uruguay duty early, ahead of that fantastic Merseyside derby at Goodison Park, by the way. I'm going to put in a quick shout for that one. One of the best derbies I've seen in a good while. Um, and Hayley, you had a story last week about a fanatical Udinese fan who um, ended up being the only away fan at one of their games. Um, um, so it got me thinking about travel tales to away games. I want two stories, please, of interesting away day travels, maybe from a fan perspective, a team or any other tale, and a personal one of your own. Uh, Nat, let's start with you. Well, I want you to spare a thought for the Russian National Football League side, Luch Energia fans, who are based in Vladivostok. Who? I know. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. But yeah, I think it's Luch Energia. Anyway, based in Vladivostok. And if you're not quite sure of your geography of Russia, uh, that is on the borders of China and North Korea. Now, first of all, the local derby is a good nine hour, 41 minute drive away if you want to go there. But the furthest they have to travel fans wise is a 10,000 mile round trip if they want to see their side take on, here we go, Baltica Kaliningrad. Now, if they're driving, that takes over five days or it's a nine and a half hour flight. Plus, you've got to take in an eight hour time difference as well. So that is going from east to west, west to east. It's quite incredible and quite a distance. And I'm sure there are a few fans that probably take a good good trip out there uh, when they want to. So that's my uh, away days with regards to a, a professional team. And bizarrely enough, being a Brentford fan, I have gone to a few away games, but I've never encountered any problems travel-wise or being at a ground or whatever. I've never had an issue. You mean like, you're just that girl off the telly, you're just that girl off the telly. Or worse, there are other chants out there I have been subject to. Oh, Hayley. No, I think maybe I'm just in the prawn sandwich brigade, so I don't ever have any problems. You know what the moral of the tale here, Natalie? Manchester United fan versus Brentford fan. Who do you think is going to get the easier time? Mm. There you go. So I've had it quite easier. Maybe that's just because I'm a Brentford fan. People probably are just sympathetic to the fact I'm a Brentford fan. That it's enough trouble as it is. I've travelled to some weird places. When Middlesbrough, my hometown team, when I was working in the northeast covering local football, when they got through and they were in the UEFA Cup, which is now, of course, the Europa League, we travelled to some really random places. Banica Strava, went to some nice places, Valencia, and visited Greece. But there were some places that I went where they didn't even have ladies' toilets. So that that was a bit troublesome. And I wasn't allowed in the press room once, but that's fine. didn't want to go in anyway. Um, One of my stories, uh, my away trips, um, do you remember when Jimmy Five Bellies and Gaza used to kind of play pranks. Well, yeah. Gaza always played the pranks on Jimmy Five Bellies. Well, when Gaza was presumably playing football um, for Lazio, he was sending over Jimmy Five Bellies to, to come and visit him in Italy. I'm guessing this trip to Italy was to come and watch him play, um, not just for the um, Euros. So he said, I'll send you out to Italy. You can come and watch me play football. I'll book you a flight, send you direct. He does not like flying. Jimmy Five Bellies, he's a big guy, has trouble enough as it is. He sent him on a car journey down to London. When he got to London, or across London, wherever he was coming from, he then had to fly to um, Paris 
He had a stopover in Paris. He then flew to Copenhagen. He then flew him to somewhere else where he then finally ended up in Italy. So there you have it. I've never quite travelled and done that no. kind of scenario. No. Did once go to St James's Park. It wasn't actually to watch Middlesbrough or Man United. It was on a Sunday afternoon, going up with a load of friends who are Newcastle fans, being from the northeast. Had a lovely day out. I was driving left the car. I was only about 19 at the time. I'd only been driving for a couple of years. I was in my dad's Rover, or so I thought. I actually drove my mum's Ford car up to Newcastle, but I forgot which car I was in. So when I went to the car park, when I couldn't find my car, I was I was just in turmoil. My friends had to get the train and the bus home, but that's fine. They lived in Durham. I had a pair of... Fli- all the time your car was in the car yeah. park and your poor yeah. friends were on the yeah. train. <laughs> I had some wedge flip-flops on where it was a really sunny day. It was in August. But the middle of the flip-flop actually split. So I was walking around with one shoe on, one shoe off. Could not find where the car was parked genuinely my mum came to pick me up it was only when my mum pulled up in my dad's rover that I realised I was in my mum's Ford Focus and that was the worst thing that's ever happened to me and of course I went and found the car and followed her all the way back down the A19 my poor mum had spent this lovely sunny day in the car coming to rescue me Um, All right, I'll start with my general one first and then I'll tell you a few tales of me getting to away games this is an opportunity for you ladies I don't know how much it costs. It says you need to call for the price, which always concerns me. It's a bit like whenever you go into a shop and it says, you know, please, please ask about the price. Yeah. You know, it's going to run into the thousands, don't you? How would you like an experience that gives you the chance to get up close and personal with the FC Barcelona football team? Because you can buy this. What a great away day travel idea. OK, so from Barcelona, you're going to travel in a private charter with the players. You feel the buzz, it says here, as you meet the players at the check-in desk surrounded by the national press. Can you imagine this? It's, it's actually just, just half a step away from actually you know, trying to be a member of the Barcelona football team, impersonating one. Um, it says here that you get to hang out with them in the departure lounge, have your picture taken and collect the autographs. There's even a Facebook page with you know, fans who've done this. Um, it says here, very importantly, that once you're on the plane, you're going to be sat within a few feet of the greatest football team in the world. You can observe their pre-match routines. I just When I read this, I just thought the pre-match routines don't start on the plane. Who on earth writing this stuff? Uh, as it says, some of the players remain pensive and focused, while others are light-hearted and jovial. So I'd ask whether you'd want to brood with Messi or party with PK. Upon landing, it says uh, you'll be taken by coach to the hotel or the ground, depending on your schedule. You will not have any, any other contact with the Barcelona football team after that. I just added that in. But um, presumably, once the players have been within a few feet of you, they'd probably want to go into their own space or their actual pre-match ritual. Do you think, do you think any of them pretend to have a pre-match ritual on the plane just to kind of make it seem more worth the money, perhaps? So you get to watch the game and then after the game, it says here that you'll soak up the euphoria or disappointment with the players on the return flight. What happens if they lose badly? Barcelona doesn't happen very often, does it? <laughs> this is true, Natalie Sawyer. I don't know how much it costs, but uh, there's an opportunity wow. for your folks. A um, couple of away day travels. When, when I was young, so I would have been under under 20 several years ago, I went to watch Liverpool play at Selhurst Park. Now, this would have been a Wimbledon game because they ground shared with Selhurst Park for quite a few years. Our train broke down on the way to the game. I, I can't remember where it broke down. It probably would have been... Um, West Norwood or Gypsy Hills, somewhere like that. And I remember having to walk along part of the tracks to get to the games. That was a fairly um, different away day experience. I should have taken the hint, by the way, there, because when I got to the game, Selhurst Park being what it was back in those days, 
a little bit ropey. The women's toilet's probably a little bit ropier still. Um, I went to the loo at half time and the door got jammed. It must have bulged in, in, in like the rain or something or swollen. But I couldn't get out the toilet. <laughs> Missed a good section of the, fir- of, of the second half because I could not get out of the loo at Selhurst Park. It was traumatic. Okay, without further ado, let's move on to a roundup of Syria from Mina Rizuki. Over to you, Mina. Hello and welcome to another Serie A roundup. And as usual, it's all about the drama. Milan continued to tumble down the well of desperation, stuttering and suffering along the way. They may have taken 39 shots on goal, but only managed a 1-1 draw against Genoa, a side that played with only 10 men for the majority of the game. We're waiting for you with sticks, the fans chanted. And lo and behold, after the end of the match, the ultras blocked the Milan bus from exiting to demand a word with the players. Christian Abiati and Kaká obliged and promised more determined performances. The result? A win at Celtic Park. Rafa Benitez has guided Napoli to their best ever start to a Serie A campaign. History was made. However, after suffering their second consecutive Serie A defeat, some journalists have the gall to question whether the Spaniard is good enough for the most tactical league in the world. Italians and their high expectations. Meanwhile, Roma drew again for the third time in a row, allowing Juve top spot in the league. Boasting class, experience and an insatiable appetite for wins, the Turin Giants managed their fifth consecutive league victory despite their many absences. Their recent form demonstrates exactly why they are and remain the team to beat in Italy, managing their best ever start to a season under boss Antonio Conte. But there was one more game to mention. Kevo Verona are known as the Flying Donkeys. Why? Because their rivals, Hellas Verona, once told them donkeys would fly before they reached Serie A. Guess what? They did reach top flight, have survived as Hellas Verona toiled in the lower leagues, and on Saturday afternoon defeated their rivals to win the derby. What's that in the sky? Back to you, girls. Thanks very much, Mina. And uh, there is the end of our podcast, ladies. Natalie, thank you very much for stepping in for Hoops. I've loved it. I've enjoyed it. It's been great fun. And Hayley, as ever, thanks to you as well. And uh, guys, don't forget, check out the website. There's a great uh, couple of blogs on there, by the way. I haven't got time to mention them, but go and check them out. Uh, OffsideRulePodcast.com. Via Twitter, check us out at OffsideRulePod. Our Facebook page as well, please. Uh, the Offside Rule. Give it a like. And uh, also, you can download us every Thursday and listen to us too via Audioboo and iTunes. See you later. The female take on football.